Hello, welcome to my podcast, The Rise and Fall of the Qing Dynasty, Cup of Solid Gold, and this is Episode 5, Boy Emperor. For those of you that have been following my podcast, you will recall I talked about the unexpected death of the prior emperor, Huang Taiji, and how that left the Qing dynasty without a named emperor. And eventually they chose a young boy by the name of Fulin, who would have been one of Huang Taiji's sons. I also talked about the co-regency that would rule along with this this new emperor. And one of the co-regents I talked about, his name, Duarguan, and what he meant to the Qing very early in their story and the huge impact he had. And for the first six or seven years of Fu Lin's reign, Duarguan would have been the de facto emperor, would have been the one that was putting his own stamp on what was going on and also the further conquests in southern part of China. After Duarguan died, Fulin decided he wanted to assert his control on his empire, on his dynasty. He would have been a boy of just 12 years old at this time. And if I had to define and summarize this part of Fulin's reign, I would call it, or summarize it as, settling in, virtuous, healing, piety, and change. Fulin disliked the Manju influence. He wanted to move away from that and wanted more outside input into his reign. This doesn't seem surprising given what had happened or was happening in the last 50 years with the Manchu and the Qings. And at this point, the Ming had been vanquished. So there was really no need to make conquest as your primary goal. At this point, they needed to build the Qing government. And that is where the story catches up with our new young emperor, Fulin. And he wanted to change the political processes. He did not like the political style that was practiced by his uncle, Duarguan. And one of the first things Fulin did in 1651 was he put out an anti-corruption edict which was an attempt to root out corrupt practices and officials directly as a result of what had been uncovered with Duarguan. However, it appears that Fulin's zeal in doing the anti-corruption edict went too far, and it was probably hastily put together because it ended up opening up a Pandora's box with lots of people finger-pointing, lots of lives ruined, 
many people exposed. And this caused him a lot of political grief until he died. He also was bothered by the way in which the banners had been handled in the past and the, for lack of a better word, skullduggery that was involved in the banners and who possessed them. So he also, early in his reign, did another edict, and it was ordering that three out of the eight banners would always stay under the then or current emperor's control. Again, this was a direct response to his uncle, Duarguen. This way, the emperor had control of both the yellow banner, which would be the plain yellow banner and the border yellow banner, as well as the plain white banner. Fulin is known for his personal development, that he learned Mandarin, he learned astronomy and mathematics. He's most noted for his deeply religious convictions, his piety. Contemporaries of his time described him as open-minded, scholarly, but sickly and in poor health and had a notoriously bad temper. One of the things he did was he ordered more Han Chinese into the royal household because he wanted to bring more culture into the imperial household and the Han Chinese were generally better educated. Fulin's children were all tutored by Han Chinese. And he also allowed Han Chinese men to marry Manju women. Another controversial practice he did was he brought back using eunuchs for a wide variety of official duties. And the eunuchs so far in the Qing dynasty had been disfavored. They were widely used during the Ming dynasty, but the Qing's had shunned from them because they felt the eunuchs couldn't be trusted, that they were always involved in some intrigue and plot. And so this brought some concern very early on by a lot of the Manju nobles that Fulin was doing this. However, what comes out of the Fulin story to me when I read it is his religious beliefs and his piety. It seems he befriended a German Jesuit priest by the name of Adam Schall von Bell. And allegedly this priest had cured his mother of an illness. And so Fulin had great respect for him, referred to him as grandfather, included him in important state decisions. He even allowed the priest to restore a Catholic church in Peking, which has a which is known colloquially as Xiaoumen. And I understand that church is still there. And during its restoration and its reconstruction, Fulin allegedly visited there many times. Later in his life, later in his reign, Fulin shifted from Catholicism to Buddhism. And it is believed he was influenced by the eunuchs in making this decision. And also got to the point where he wanted to become a Buddhist monk Now, one thing that is quite peculiar about that is that he had essentially a harem 
19 wives and 13 concubines. And so when I hear talk of him wanting to become a Buddhist monk, it's really like, seriously, uh, that's almost can't, cannot be believed. Nonetheless, throughout his biography, there is references to him wanting to become a monk. And we'll talk about that a little bit later in this episode. There's a touching story, though, regarding one of his favorite concubines. Her name was Xiao Xian, and he was deeply in love with her. And she died in 1660, and Fulin fell into a deep depression, a very long grief. He even threatened suicide. Many people were very concerned about him. But many people also thought he was mentally ill over this. And others were very jealous that he had this kind of feeling for this woman. His grief apparently was so bad that within one year after her death, he died. He died in, on February 15th, 1661, and he would have been only 22 years of age. He's buried northeast of Peking, and he left behind eight sons, four of which lived to maturity, six daughters, one of which lived to maturity, and many, many wives and consorts. Now, here's where the story gets really interesting with Fulin. With Fulin, we don't, he didn't leave the Qing with a succession crisis, but he left him with a death crisis. Let me explain. When he died, there were rumors that he didn't die at that time, that he went off to become a Buddhist priest. But again, the number of wives and concubines he had, I, that, that story doesn't seem plausible. Plus, at the time of his death, a ranking bodyguard and a consort committed suicide to assist him in his death. This would have been a common practice at that time. So the death was probably real. Otherwise, why would they kill themselves? But the drama doesn't end there. There was mystery and intrigue surrounding his death. There were some claims that he died of smallpox. And there's some credence to this in that there was an epidemic then in China that he allegedly was always sickly, always ill. He was always appear, always appeared to be weak. There were allegations for months before his death that he was seen spitting blood. There's some that claim he was forced out or murdered by powerful nobles that thought he was mentally ill and didn't like his anti-corruption policies. Also, they were fearful that he was bringing back the eunuchs and that he was favoring the Ming Han traditions over the Manju traditions. Early in February, right before he died, when he was too weak to do anything else, he ordered that his will be prepared, and his will in Last Testament was taken and then published. The will then allegedly was brought to his mother, and he died a day after it was published. In that will, he named 
his third son as his successor. And that third son will be the subject of our next pod, of my next podcast. And this person, this son, was named for two reasons. One was that he had gotten smallpox and recovered from it. So they felt he was immune from it. There's also some that believed his mother had a higher social status than the moms of his other sons. And therefore, that was why he appointed his third son as successor. This next emperor would have been only eight years old. So one of the things Fulin did in his last will and testament is he also named four Manju nobles that would be co-regents for this new emperor. But the story still gets murky. The last will and testament apparently was destroyed. And it was replaced with a document that has been described as weird and an obvious forgery. And in this document, he went to great lengths to chastise himself. It's written as an apology, citing his many faults, idleness, extravagance, particularly over the lavish funeral he had held for his favorite concubine, his neglect of the military, his bias toward eunuchs, his distrust of senior manjus, the rejection of his mother's advice, that he failed to award titles and money or privileges to those manjus that had helped in the conquest of China. One thing the document did do, it named his third son, just like the one that was destroyed, and the four regents. We'll never know what really happened. There is strong evidence that his mother and the four regents forged it. There was even speculation that the four regents arranged for his death or failed to prevent it. My opinion is smallpox sounds right. He was weak, sick, frail, grieving. It was an epidemic. And the two other people I mentioned had committed suicide. The substitute will story, to me, when I read it, doesn't make any sense. Other than to slander his name or to try to rewrite history or just petty jealousy. It's very strange. So in conclusion, in summary, Fulin's reign was far too short to really make an honest assessment of it. The first half of it, the good six or the first six or seven years of his reign, and he were only ruled for 16, 17 years, was overshadowed by his very, very powerful and larger-than-life Uncle Duarguan. Once Fulin did take over the empire himself, he tried to settle in. And I'm left with a picture of a sick, weak, passive, gentle, 
reflective man. The exact opposite of what we had seen from the prior three emperors. Immediately after his death, the four nobles ordered a full-scale review of his government policies, and they undid some of his institutions and executed some of his favorites. One of the things the four nobles did was they replaced the so-called 13 offices that Fulin had established with an office of household. The 13 offices that he created had been disfavored because it was run by eunuchs. As I stated, there's a stark contrast to Fulin and Nuar Hachur and Huang Taiji and Do Arguin. And perhaps that's inevitable and maybe even predictable. Compared to Nuar Hachur and Huang Taiji and Do Arguin, Fulin seems a complete opposite. Whatever his faults may have been, I think you have to give credit to Fulin that he attempted to steer the dynasty into a new direction, away from being conquerors, away from the warlike warlike mentality that had emboldened the Qing for the last 50 years. The greatest and biggest legacy, though, I think of Fulin is that he was the father of the next emperor I'm going to talk about. And that emperor's name, the official name of that emperor, is Kangxi, and perhaps one of the greatest emperors in the Qing dynasty. And I'm excited to talk about his life and what was going on in China during his life. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. <laughs>